0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And we are doing part two of our episode on Jean-Eugène Robert-Houdin. Uh, So if you didn't listen to the first one, highly encouraged, because we're jumping right back in. When we left off last time, Robert Audin had just finished the 1844 Paris Expo, at which he had won a silver medal and sold his most impressive automaton to P.T. Barnum. He was still working in his shop as a watchmaker, but he had become proficient enough with automata that he was often called on to repair other people's mechanical props, and he had become pretty well-known in conjuring circles in Paris. So today, we are picking up right there to talk about how he pretty quickly transitioned from being an unknown watchmaker to being a famous magician in his early 40s.
1: Robert O'Donnell had been performing some demonstrations of tricks for people during the 1844 Expo. That's We heard about that in the account from P.T. Barnum that we read in part one. These seem to have been primarily done to show off the capabilities of the mechanized show props that he had on display there. But when the expo was over, maybe buoyed by his success, Roberodan started considering stage conjuring more seriously. Exactly how he got to that dream is something that's told in different ways, although the primary players and details in the different versions are pretty consistent.
2: Yeah, so we're going with one particular version here today. No, as we talk about the interactions between these two men, they may or may not have been a little different. Uh, So this version states that the Count de l'Escalopier happened upon Robert Houdin's shop while he was walking around Paris one day in 1843. So that would have been even before that Paris exposition that we've been talking about. And the Count was so impressed with Jean-Eugène's inventions that he wanted to become his patron, to help him with launching a theater. This interest on Lescalopier's part started not with a stage act automaton though, but with something called a magic clock.
1: Roberotdan's magic clocks continue to be sources of fascination today, particularly for people interested in clockworks and watchmaking. There are still a few of them around in museums and private collections, and what makes them so extraordinary is the fact that they appear to work without any actual clockworks. The dial of the clock is made of clear glass, and the hands of the clock appear to be floating in the dial without any connections to any kind of mechanism, but they tick out the time precisely. The clear dial is ringed in brass, and it sits atop a long glass rod. One that came up in the research was 57 centimeters or 22 and a half inches tall. That height includes the round face, the glass rod, a filigree base, and a black lacquer pedestal with a red velvet top.
2: So there are, of course, clockworks involved in this. There is no magic to it. The clock face is actually composed of three layers of glass with the hands painted on the layers and their toothed edges are hidden within the brass frame. That clear glass rod is actually two rods, one within another, and the interior rod is turned by a clockwork in the base and in turn catches the teeth on the edges of the clear round face plates to move the hands and keep time. It's a very elegant and beautiful design, I must say.
1: Yeah, sounds cool. And the Count de l'Escalapier purchased one of these clocks from robert Dan and was so charmed by the clock and the shop and robert Dan himself that he started going to the shop regularly to see what the watchmaker was working on and just to chat with him. It was through these chats that robert Dan told the Count of his desire to have a stage act one day. And at that point, l'Escalapier offered to finance it. He made that offer on the spot. At first, Robertudin was reluctant. He didn't really want to risk someone else's money.
2: But then, several days later, the story goes, that the count needed a favor. He had noticed that money was going missing from his desk, and he could not figure out who was taking it. He wanted Robertudin to put his creative mind to catching the thief, which he did, According to an account written by Henry Ridgely Evans, who was a magic historian who lived from 1861 to 1849, here is what happened. Quote, The upshot of all of it was that Udin, he did not know to make it both names as Robert Udin, so sometimes you'll hear him referred to just as Uddin, The upshot of all of it was that Houdin invented a clever device for apprehending the criminal. It consisted of an apparatus fastened to the inside of the desk in the Count's house. When the desk was unlocked and the lid raised ever so little, a pistol was discharged. At the same time, a claw-like arrangement attached to a light rod and impelled by a spring came sharply down on the back of the hand which held the key, inflicting a superficial flesh wound. With this clever machine, the robber was successfully caught. He proved to be the Count's valet, a trusted employee. This reminds me of a whole episode of, I
1: think, the podcast Criminal that I listened to about <laughs> people setting booby traps to catch thieves. The Count gave the money he recovered from the thief to Robert Dan. He told Robert Dan that he had to take this money. He could only repay it from the profits the theater made if the theater was indeed profitable. Sometimes this is reported as a sum of 10,000 francs, sometimes 15,000. In either case, though, it gave the watchmaker the money to start his own venue.
2: Yeah, part of the reason that number is a little bit unclear is that there was never an official contract here. There are mentions of it uh, from both men, but, like, they they literally just shook on it, and that was it. <laughs> uh, which is very trusting on the part of Descalopier. Robert Audin rented a space in the Palais Royal and custom-built it out to be his performance space, which was a cozy 200-seat theater. He wrote of his renovations, something deeply relatable, if you've ever had any work done on your house, writing, quote, I will spare my readers the numberless tribulations which accompanied my unending building. Mistakes in time and money are so usual in such matters that I need not allude to them here. At length, all this was over, and with the liveliest pleasure, I saw the last workman depart not to return again. He opened his theater to the public on July 3rd, 1845, with a show he called Soiree Fantastique. And he ran his show very differently than other conjurers had before him.
1: In his memoir, Robert O'Don listed the ways the theater reformed traditional stage conjuring. He had worked as an assistant to other conjurers and found the use of them to be more of a hindrance than a help, largely because it made the main performer seem less impressive. He also used gas lights instead of candles. He refused to use tablecloths that draped down to the floor because he knew it made audiences suspect some kind of trickery was happening underneath the drape. He also wrote, quote, "'Of course I abstained from any eccentric costume,' and I never thought of making any change in the attire civilized society has agreed to accept for evening dress, for I was always of opinion that bizarre accoutrement, far from giving the wearer any consideration, on the contrary, cast disfavor upon him.
2: We should note that most historians do seem to agree that there actually were some assistants in the theater they were just not part of the act, but instead were working behind the scenes to run the various mechanical props Robert used.
1: He also had firm rules for himself about how he behaved in his act. He wrote, quote, I also traced out for my performances a line of conduct from which I never diverged. That was to make no puns or play upon words and never to permit myself to be guilty of a mystification. Even were I sure of gaining the greatest success. Finally, I wished to offer new experiments divested of all charlatanism and possessing no other resources than those offered by skillful manipulation and the influence of illusions. This was, it will be seen, a complete regeneration in the art of conjuring. My only fear was whether the public would accept these important reforms and such elegant simplicity.
2: And really, the manner in which Robert Houdin presented his theater and his stage act is what actually makes him so notable in history, at least in my opinion. Even if you never heard of him before this, when you hear the word magician, what you think of or what you picture in your mind is almost certainly an image that is modeled on Robert Houdin. Biographer Christopher Fechner
1: wrote about the significant shift that happened to stage magic when Robert O'Dan opened his theater. Quote, It's important to understand what magic was like before Robert O'Dan. Not only that, but you must understand how audiences viewed a magic show before Robert O'Dan. Magic was not considered an art. When people went to a magic show, it was to have fun. The magicians often pulled pranks on their neighbors. They were not big mysteries. There was nothing classy about it. Popular, yes, but it was a low level of entertainment, like performing animals. Robert Dan changed all of that and made magic a high form of entertainment. Probably not only because of his repertoire, but also because of his charm and personality on stage, his elegance, his education. He was able to make magic acceptable to France's high society because he knew them very well from selling them his mechanical clocks and automata, when you entered into the Théâtre robert you did not enter into a theater, but into a living room, and your host was on stage, and he talked to you like a host and magically offered you food, drinks, and gifts.
2: The very idea of going to a Conjuring performance became something audiences dressed up for. It was a fine evening out, which it had never been before. The best comparison I could think of to possibly make here is the difference in how you might approach going to a movie at your local Cinemaplex versus attending a play in an upscale theater. You would just dress a little nicer for the play, and that's kind of how this happened. And this all worked. After a somewhat slow start, due in part to Robert Redin not really having his stage presence and his banter figured out initially, his small theater was soon filled to capacity for pretty much every performance. Just as the watchmaker and magician had elevated the experience, he also elevated ticket prices above what people normally paid to see magic shows, so he did quite well for himself despite the limited seating. Additionally, because he himself handled so much of the theater's operations, his operational overhead was relatively low. We'll talk about
1: some of Robert Dan's stage spectacles in just a moment, but first we will pause for a
0: sponsor break.
2: privileges, and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Dan continued to keep his watch shop open, so when events like the February Revolution of 1848 stopped most entertainment he was able to suspend his Paris performance schedule. Then he kind of went back to his regular day business for a bit. He worked at developing new automata. But then he went on the road, touring Europe. He had tried to stay open during that time. He had offered free admission to his theater as a way of drumming up audiences before that offer to travel and perform elsewhere was made. And he found that he did not like the audiences that that approach created, noting, quote, the free admission, when he believes the theater short of spectators, imagines he is doing an act of kindness by accepting the invitation offered him. While he was touring, and while he was in England on that tour, Robert Rodin gave a performance for Queen Victoria. That was the first of two he would have with her in his career.
1: Robert Dan regularly introduced new spectacles into his show, so we'll talk about a couple of his most famous automata. The first is the orange tree. Roberto Dan described this trick this way in his writing, quote, a mysterious orange tree on which flowers and fruit burst into life at the request of the ladies. As the finale, a handkerchief I borrowed was conveyed into an orange purposely left on the tree. This opened and displayed the handkerchief which two butterflies took by the corners and unfolded before the spectators. There are actually modern performances of the orange tree trick, although we know today that the item or items collected from the audience member are placed by sleight of hand. The rest of this is a clockwork, which is really quite charming and even beautiful.
2: Yeah, there are some really good ones you can find if you just go online and search um Roberta Orange Tree Trick. You'll find some, and they're pretty entertaining to watch. Also, incidentally, if you saw the 2006 film The Illusionist, which contains a version of the orange tree trick, please know that the one in the film is an enhanced version inspired by, but not replicating, Roberto Dan's. Some of that is just movie magic. Uh, You may also read accounts that give slightly different versions of how this trick played out, including some that featured the oranges being plucked from the tree and passed around to the audience to eat as proofs that they were real. Those had been kind of placed onto the orange tree, onto these spikes that it had so that they could bloom out with the clockwork. Sometimes it was those, sometimes it was fake ones, apparently, depending on who does the trick and when in history it was happening.
1: Houdini wrote about the orange tree trick in his Unmasking book. He noted that though Roberidan claimed it as his own invention, it was really a variation of tricks that had been performed by other conjurers for more than a century before the Soiree Fantastique. Houdini traced the automaton's design back to a man named Christopher Pinchbeck Sr. who died in 1732 and who premiered a trick called the apple tree in 1730. Houdini then traced several other performers who used some variation of it between Pinchbeck and Robert Houdin. Because Robert Dan was such a voracious reader, Houdini believed he had read about the trick as it was performed by his predecessors and decided to make it his own and claim credit for it, assuming that not many others knew this history he was borrowing from. Houdini includes images in his book of playbills and advertisements in which prior performers advertised an orange tree trick that sounds very, very similar.
2: Yeah, Houdini, as we have talked about on the show many times, a big collector of a lot of items related to magic and had all the receipts, basically, and reprinted them in his books (laughs) to take down uh, other people. Another popular automaton-based act of Robert Houdin's was a miniature bakery sometimes called The Confectioner. He described it as, quote, "...a small pastry cook issuing from his shop door at the word of command and bringing, according to the spectator's request, patisserie and refreshments of every description. At the side of the shop, assistant pastry cooks might be seen rolling paste and putting it in the oven." This description really does not convey how cute and charming this particular automaton is. Roberto Dam would offer a member of the audience, normally a woman, a menu card with a selection of different pastries to choose from, including a macaron. Uh, a pastry chef would pop out the door of the shop to receive the order and then retreat inside to prepare it, and the audience would be able to see the baker moving within as well as those assistants that he mentioned preparing the ordered item. And then after a few moments, the baker would pop back out of the main door of the miniature shop bearing the requested treat.
1: This was another one that Robert O'Dan was credited as the inventor of for a long time, but it existed well before him. Houdini wrote of this one, quote, This trick in various guises can be traced back as far as 1796. Nine reputable magicians offered it as part of their repertoire, and at times, two men presented it simultaneously, showing that more than one such automaton existed. According to Houdini's research, there were many variations as well. There was a fruitery, a Dutch coffee house and, quote, a Russian inn from which ten sorts of liquor are served. After that, it evolved into the confectioner's shop, essentially the same as the way Robert Oden had performed it. Houdini then offers up a lot of supporting documentation to make his case for all this.
2: Then, for a trick called Second Sight, Robert Audin had a very special co-star on the stage. That was his oldest son, Emile. And he credited his two surviving children with giving him the idea for this trick. He wrote, quote, "'My two children were playing one day in the drawing room at a game they had invented for their own amusement. The younger had bandaged his elder brother's eyes and made him guess the objects he touched, and when the latter happened to guess right, they changed places.'" This simple game suggested to me the most complicated idea that ever crossed my mind. Pursued by the notion, I ran and shut myself up in my workroom and was fortunately in that happy state when the mind follows easily the combinations traced by fancy. I rested my head in my hands and in my excitement laid down the first principles of second sight.
1: Robertin said that Emile's natural ability for recall was greater than his own and that he also trained him in memory games to prepare him for the trick. Houdini would later write that this was a complete waste of time. For the act, which premiered on February 12th, 1846, Emile was blindfolded, and then Jean-Eugène would hold up items that he had received from the audience. The boy would state what they were without having seen them, while the first audience to see the act was, according to Robert Dan, not especially responsive uh, or receptive to this particular bit, later audiences really marveled at it, so much so that he credits this act with being the one that really started his constant sellouts.
2: In his memoirs, Robert Houdin confessed the trickery of it, that he and Emile had a code that was undetectable to anyone else, writing, quote, A secret and unnoticeable correspondence existed between my son and myself, by which I could announce to him the name, nature, and bulk of the objects handed me by spectators. As none understood my mode of action, they were tempted to believe in something extraordinary, and, indeed, my son Emil, then aged 12, possessed all the essential qualities to produce this opinion, for his pale, intellectual, and ever-thoughtful face represented the type of a boy gifted with some supernatural power.
1: Many who have studied Roberodan's work, including Houdini, believe that there was some sort of silent code, like an electric signal, that Dan used as well as verbal cues that he gave during his presentation. Of the originality of Dan's Second Sight Act, Houdini wrote, quote, some of Dan's ardent supporters insist that in claiming the invention or discovery of Second Sight the French conjurer was merely an unconscious plagiarist, having stumbled upon, quite by accident, a trick which he did not know that others had offered before him. Such a statement is illogical and absurd. Books of magic to which Robert Dan had access, and which he admits having read, described the trick in a more or less crude form.
2: But regardless of how later aficionados of conjuring have viewed Robert Houdin, or if he was, as Houdini put it, quote, a clever purloiner and adapter of the tricks invented and used by his predecessors and contemporaries, to the audiences of mid-19th century Paris, he was nothing short of amazing. And he did very well for himself because of it. We mentioned already that during the February Revolution, he left Paris for a time to tour. Once he returned to his Palais Royal theater when that was over, he kind of became an iconic part of the Paris entertainment scene, and that happened very quickly. He wrote of his return to the Paris stage, Need I describe the delight with which I presented myself once more before a Parisian audience, whose kind patronage I had not forgotten. Those professional men who, like myself, have been long absent from Paris will understand it, for they know nothing is so sweet to the heart as the applause given by a man's fellow citizens.
1: Coming up, we'll cover a surprising move on Roberidan's part, handing his stage over to another magician. We will get to that after we pause and hear from the sponsors
0: that keep the podcast going. Happy Pride from Tomboy X
2: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. After a while back in Paris, Robert Audin gave his student pierre Etienne Chocat, who used the stage name Hamilton, use of the theater, having taught him more or less, his entire repertoire of tricks. It just so happened that Hamilton was also the love interest of robert sister. This move was in part because robert had noticed that he was not as energetic as he had been before his tour. He just found stage shows a lot more draining. But it was also motivated by the fact that his wife, Olympe, had just given birth to their first son in Blois, and he wanted to go there to spend some time. Once he was convinced that Hamilton can more or less handle things, something that he tested, apparently, by going to performances in disguise, he not only spent time with his family, but also decided to tour a little bit more. He traveled around France, and then to Germany, and then back to England, where he once again gave a command performance for the Queen.
1: He returned to his Paris theater for a brief time, but then at the age of 48 decided to retire from the stage, he once again handed the Palais Royal theater to Hamilton, this time for good. He had only been a theatrical magician for eight years, but had become a sensation. He later wrote, quote, "'At last in January 1852, "'judging Hamilton fit to succeed me, "'I decided on giving up my establishment to him. "'And in order that my theater, the fruit of my labors, "'might remain in the family, two contracts were signed.' And on the same day, my pupil became my brother-in-law and my
2: successor. Just a few years into his retirement, Jean-Eugène robert Robert-Houdin was called back to the stage by none other than the French government. In 1830, France had invaded and colonized Algeria. That began a 132-year rule of Algeria by France, which did not end until 1962 with the Algerian War of Independence. That period of foreign rule might have been much shorter had it not been for Robert-Rudin.
1: This is sometimes relayed as kind of a fun fact about that time a magician stopped a war, and on a technicality, yes, you could say that. But what he really stopped was the reclaiming of Algiers by its indigenous population, which had been enduring what a lot of historians have categorized as a genocide for 25 years at this point. That, of course, is way less fun, but also a more accurate way to put it. So, all of that being
2: acknowledged, here's what happened. In 1856, a revolutionary movement was growing among the Algerian population, and France was getting concerned. Uh, This movement was usually described, at least from the French side, as having been led by the Maribu. A Marabou is a Muslim religious leader, and often these figures are linked with military efforts because they often serve much in the same way that chaplains do with military forces of primarily Christian nations. When France occupied Algeria, they maintained order by getting a lot of the most powerful people in the occupied region, including some chieftains, on their side. And as a consequence, a lot of the population turned to the Marabou for leadership. In the 1850s, the French believed that the Marabou were fomenting a rebellion. The French also believed that the reason that the Marabou had such sway over the people of the region was because their followers believed they had magical powers.
1: So the French thought if they brought in their own magician to make an even more powerful showing, the Marabou would be discredited or at least humbled into complacence with their European colonizers. That's how Robert O'Dan found himself in Algeria in late October 1856 with two special shows booked at the Babazun Theater. The first show started quite pleasantly. He did the kind of benign and delightful tricks that you might see a magician perform, things like pulling flowers out of a hat. According to Robert Audin, quote, but it was not enough to amuse my spectators. I must also, in order to fulfill the object of my mission, startle and even terrify them by the display of a supernatural power. My arrangements had all been made for this purpose, and I had reserved for the end of my performances three tricks, which must complete my reputation as a sorcerer.
2: So after those sort of benign tricks, he next showed the audience a strong box with a ring handle and asked for a volunteer to come up and see if he could lift it a muscular man from the audience, came up and was able to lift the box easily. Heads up, there's some very sexist language ahead. Uh, after that box was easily lifted, Robert Audin reportedly did some sort of magical arm movement and said the words, Voila! You are weaker than a woman now. Try to lift the box. This time, no matter how hard he tried, that volunteer could not lift the box. There are some reports that he tried so hard that his legs gave out and he fell to the floor. It was a total Thor's hammer situation. Like, this was a Molnir, and he could not get it. This left the volunteer very unsettled, as well as some of the audience, but it was, of course, a trick that Robert Houdin had done many times in his stage act, with an electromagnet under the stage floorboards.
1: Next, he caught a marked bullet in his teeth after having told the audience that he had a talisman, which rendered him invulnerable. One of the men in the crowd said that he wanted to kill Roberadan, and the magician offered him a pistol to inspect and then use. That's a trick that's done a lot of different ways, depending on the conjurer's choice. Some use wax bullets instead of real ones. Some use guns that only shoot blanks. Some use magnetic bullets. All the magician has to do is keep the real bullet in their mouth until it's time to produce it. For somebody who doesn't know the trick, it is really impressive.
2: The final trick the French magician used to quell this rebellion was to make one of the men from the audience disappear. This caused a panic. He basically did like one of those, you know, behind the sheet is this man, and then he wasn't there anymore. And in the panic, there was this rush to leave the theater because people at that point uh, thought that Robert was a demon or was somehow channeling something dangerous. But then they found the vanished man outside seeming a little bit disoriented.
1: And then he did the exact same show the following night, convincing the Algerians that the French had powerful magic. According to Dance's memoirs, he actually didn't want to leave things in this state. Per his account, quote, the blow was struck. Henceforth, the interpreters and all those who had dealings with the Arabs received orders to make them understand that my pretended miracles were only the result of skill Inspired and guided by an art called prestidigitation, and in no way connected with sorcery. He claimed that in thanks, he was given gifts by all of the local chieftains as an honor. In 1905, a paper in Algiers, which must have had a largely French colonial readership based on its content, referenced this performance and the ongoing feelings toward Robertin in Algeria by writing, quote, he has remained in the grateful memory of the Algerians as an extraordinary man who spared France much bloodshed and moved colonization forward 20 years. So that's a dubious honor.
2: Yeah, it's very crazy and like Algeria loves him. And it's like, well, French colonizers in Algeria love him. That's a wide statement to make. After Robertin returned to France, much in demand due to his hero status for quelling that rebellion, he gave a farewell performance and then he retired, permanently this time, to write and spend more time at home. He wrote several books on magic and conjuring in his remaining years. The end of
1: Robertin's life was hastened by the Franco-Prussian War. At one point, Robertin and his family hid out in a cave near their property for safety, This was not good for his health. His younger son, Eugene, was in the military and died after being wounded at the Battle of Worth. After hearing this news, Robert O'Dan also became ill. This was probably made worse by the stress of his loss and the ongoing conflict. He died of pneumonia on June 13th, 1871.
2: After his death, his theater did stay in the family for a while, though it changed locations. When Robert Houdin's son Emile died, the theater was purchased by Georges Méliès. Uh, Robert Houdin's house in Blois is a museum that is open to the public today.
1: It seems right to actually end this episode at the beginning, beginning of Robert Houdin's memoirs. Whether he was a plagiarist, as Houdini came to believe, or not, he wanted to be seen as a man who loved his craft deeply, and that's reflected in the introduction to his memoir which starts rather poetically with, quote, "'Eight o'clock has just struck. My wife and children are by my side. I have spent one of those pleasant days which tranquility, work, and study can alone secure. With no regret for the past, with no fear for the future I am, I am not afraid to say it, as happy as man can be.'" And yet, at each vibration of this mysterious hour, my pulse starts, my temples throb, and I can scarce breathe. So much do I feel the want of air and motion. I can reply to no questions, so thoroughly am I lost in a strange and delirious revelry. Shall I confess to your reader? And why not? For this electrical effect is not of a nature, to be easily understood by you. The reason for my emotion being extreme at this moment is that during my professional career, eight o'clock was the moment when I must appear before the public. Then, with my eye eagerly fixed on the hole in the curtain, I surveyed with intense pleasure the crowd that flocked in to see me. Then, as now, my heart beat, for I was proud and happy of such success.
2: Roberta Dan goes on, In this introduction to talk about the nervousness he would feel before each performance, the delight of performing for an audience, and the sound of applause before asking, quote, Do you now understand, reader, all the reminiscences this hour evokes in me, and the solemn feeling that continually occurs to me when the clock strikes? Eight o'clock was forever his hour. Yeah. (laughs) I just like that intro. It's very beautiful. Maybe, probably ghost written. Mm. Lovely. Just the same. I have a listener mail, uh, from our listener, Caitlin, that I thought was super duper interesting. And it's about our recent episode on Ouija boards. Uh, <laughs> since, um, you know, we're still, I'm still in my Halloween feels, frankly, and I will be four months. Um, Caitlin writes, hi, Holly and Tracy, and happy Halloween. Listening to the first part of the Ouija board two-parter last week, and every time you described it as a talking board, I had a little jolt. I've spent the better part of this academic year looking at the history and contemporary use of AAC, or Alternative and Augmentative Communication, which is the broad category for any type of communication that isn't spoken word. Usually, in speech therapy and special education circles, AAC refers specifically to communication books or devices. In my research, I came across the F. hall Row Communication Board, which is often credited as the first commercially reproduced board, and which sounds an awful lot like the predecessors of Ouija boards. I've attached a picture below, but in short, you have an alphabet along with common phrases that the speaker, human or spirit, indicates in turn to form sentences. I did accessibility work for a play that stars two AAC-using characters, and the Ouija comparison would have been so useful for explaining to unfamiliar people what exactly a basic board does. I hope your holiday is spooky and fun. I've also included a photo of my cat, Sharktopus, who vehemently rejects any Halloween costume I try to put her in. She is spooky in spirit, Caitlin. Um, that is very, very cool, and I... I, when that cat is... Cute, and she's a little torty, and I love a torty. I had not thought about the possible accessibility use of something like a Ouija.
1: Yeah, my mom uses the device that has the whole alphabet and d- different specific things, like, like bathroom and coffee and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and I didn't make that connection either because the, the, we just think
2: be- of them as such different realms. Yeah. I think right. Yeah. Like, uh, but they are very very similar. Uh, So that was fascinating. Caitlin, thank you for, like, making that connection for me because now I will look at Ouija boards in a whole new way. It kind of opens up an interesting possibility for maybe where these might have started. We mentioned in that episode that they kind of just show up and people Mm -hmm. start writing about them and being like, oh, people love them for contacting spirits, but others just think they're fun. And part of me is like, was this actually some sort of device that someone was trying to put together for use in this this more um, practical way for accessibility? And someone got the idea to be like, I could play with that. Um, we'll probably never know, but it's an interesting... A thing to ponder. Uh, so thank you so much, Caitlin, because that was a cool piece of insight. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And you can subscribe to the show if you haven't already on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a
1: production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women